This is the final episode of season one of Reductio, and I wanted to take a moment to ask something of you. Please send me an email at invertedspectrum at outlook.com or send me a message on Facebook if A, you have feedback about the show and have suggestions about how to make it better, if B, you love the show and just want to let me know, if C, you want to be part of the production of Reductio somehow, if D, you have an idea for what would be really worthwhile to cover, if E, you have a song or a poem or a short story you think would fit the themes we've covered or might cover in the future, or if F, there's something else I didn't think of. I'd love to hear from you for any reason. Also, stick around after the end for some announcements about the future of the show. With that, enjoy the show. to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. I'm recording this episode in the comfort of my home, having spent weeks in isolation. The world in the past few months has experienced something somewhat rare in the modern era, a deadly infectious virus spreading around the globe at alarming rates. There have been similar cases like SARS and MERS and Zika, but none that has caused governments to essentially shut down whole sectors of their economies. One aspect of this pandemic is widespread orders to stay at home and to isolate ourselves. As a result, we've had to rely on information technology to connect us with others, to continue teaching our courses, and to get information about the crisis itself. I've never really been more grateful for the technology we have available. Hours from when I write this section of the script for the episode, I'll be playing board games online with my friends while sharing a conference call on Zoom. It won't be quite the same as being all together, We won't be breaking bread or sharing drinks or embracing one another, but it will be a lot more like being together than it would have been were we sheltering in place before the advent of communication technology. I can even imagine how bad it would be if we had text messaging plans and dial-up 5K modems. In fact, even when we weren't isolating ourselves, I often play one of the finest games ever created, Worms, which is a turn-based strategy game, We set up a party line like we used to in the 80s and 90s, and then we play this game online through the Steam network. It's super fun, it allows us to connect even though we live in California, Oregon, Colorado, Indiana. Again, it's it's not quite the same, but it's a decent substitute to being together. The theme today is the evolution of technology. How does technology come to be adopted in a society, and does it have its own autonomous logic that it imposes on us? It's natural to think that we're the ones to choose to adopt or not adopt a new technology, and we're the ones who decide how we're going to think about new technologies. Don't be so sure this is right. You might question it after this episode. Perhaps a different word for the theme of this episode is... Technocracy. More on that later. I talked with a good friend, Joel Zimbelman, here in Chico, California. We talked about this guy, Jacques Elou. He has some interesting things to say about technocracy. Uh, my name's Joel Zimbelman, and I teach uh, comparative religion and humanities at California State University in Chico, up north of Sacramento. And Joel, what got you interested in Jacques Elou? Um, I think Jacques Ellul was a guy that he's been writing for decades. His books have been out for ages. And I knew about him, but I hadn't read much about him. But I think what really got me excited in him was thinking about the world that I now live in with things like Facebook and databases and farmers using geopositioning to decide how much water to put on a, a stock of corn, those kinds of technological presence in our life these days has made me begin to wonder what it is that we're doing 
with our lives in the face of technology. And I realized after a while that Jacques Ellul would be a really great conversation partner for sorting through some of that stuff. Jacques Ellul was born on the eve of World War I. His formative years are the intervening years between two total war periods where whole societies are putting their total military industrial might into destroying one another. The early 20th century in Europe and elsewhere in the world is marked by the use of technology for destructive purposes. After World War II, though, Elul experiences technology and the industrial complex that's put in place during these wars put to different uses, agricultural, educational, medical, and so on. And suddenly what happens, of course, is, is that we begin to become a technological society using technology not just to solve our problems, but we begin to look to technology for solving all of our problems. Uh, and we are always trying to figure out ways of, of marginally increasing the use of technology to, quote, make our lives better. Technology is the solution to all our problems, the deus ex machina. Machines become our new god, and we begin to look at technology and engineering as a pathway to salvation from the ills of living in the natural world. And of course, since we're not really assessing every technology that we're embracing, it's, it's affecting your lives in unexamined ways. We begin to put so much faith in technology that we stop thinking about what types of technologies we want and whether it'd be good to implement technologies. Simply put, we stop asking ourselves whether we ought to innovate and implement new technologies. Instead, we just ask ourselves only whether we can. And so much of what he wants to do is he wants to go back and he wants to say, let's really think through what it is that's happening to us uh, and whether or not we're going down a path that we're going to be happy with. And if we're not happy with it, what is it that would have to change or what is it that's bothersome to us? So he's not against technology. And he's not against labor-saving devices. I think what he was most fearful of was the way in which technology begins to shape the kinds of people that we become, even when we don't want to become those kind of people. Ilul uses the word technique or techni to describe this autonomous, self-driving nature of technology. I think there's good reason to think that he means something along the lines of technocracy. The term technocracy comes from the Greek words techne and kratia. Techne is related to the word technique and, of course, technology. The idea here is that there's a practical science that focuses on how to do things better. The products of this science aren't theoretical facts like force equals mass times acceleration or E equals MC squared. They're instead techniques or ways of doing something better. This is fairly closely related to our modern conception of engineering. The krasi in technocracy comes from the Greek word kratia, which means government, rule, power, or influence. Think democracy, rule of the people or the demos, aristocracy, rule of the best or the ariston, Meritocracy, power and influence are decided by merit. Bureaucracy, government by means of bureaus or departments. So technocracy is something like a society ruled by technology or a system that's controlled or at least heavily influenced by technology and the values that come along with it. So we've got technology on the one hand, Wow, you know, man, we've lived since the 20s and technology, it's just amazing what we've accomplished since those days. A Model T and now we've got Tesla, right? So there's this kind of like wow factor, amazement factor. I suspect Jacques Ellul, like any human being who lived through those years, probably had wow that, that aspect. And on the other hand, you have technique. You have technology doing its own thing in a sense. It's controlling and changing us, shaping us into better users of the technologies of the day. Those changes that are coming technologically um, are coming in ways that we don't always comprehend or understand. And it's not that they're all going to be doing good things for us. They're also changing the kind of people we are, and they're pushing our culture in directions that we don't always have input into. 
And this is really scary. We human beings like to think that we're in control of things, that it is our decisions that direct the ship of society into the future. But to think that we're somehow being manipulated or controlled by the things around us is pretty unsettling. And for people living in democracies, this is particularly concerning because part of what democracies are about um, is autonomy and self-determination and allowing, if not individuals, at least the culture to decide what it wants. But technology doesn't allow that, at least not after a certain point in Western history. According to Elul, our relationship with technology, at least in the West, starts to change in the modern era. I mean, people have been tool makers since the beginning of time, right? And the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s and the early 1800s was a movement. But nobody's had to deal with the all-powerful ability of this technology almost to run itself and to decide on its own direction. That was what concerned him the most. He actually pinpoints the time when he sees our relationship with technology beginning to change. He pinpoints the shift to the middle of the 19th century in the cloth production and textile production mills of England, where he feels that individuals were, in a sense, put at the, at the service of machines rather than the other way around. That the machines became so efficient so quickly, and people's roles and their humanity in that process shifted so radically that he wants to say that that's when it occurred. But that's not the biggest concern. The biggest concern is really, have we hit a tipping point where we can't reverse it? Can you imagine living without a smartphone? Perhaps some of you already do. I do a lot with my smartphone. I watch TV, I listen to podcasts and music, I text, video chat, take pictures. Occasionally I even make phone calls. This is all pretty central to how I live my day-to-day life. There was a time not too long ago, probably about six years ago, when I didn't have a smartphone. I had a dumb phone and a dumb MP3 player. I also had a compact digital camera and... Honestly, I didn't really listen to podcasts. It was too difficult, and so I never really got into it. Now that I'm a heavy smartphone user and an avid podcast listener, it's hard to imagine going backwards. Back to a time before I had digital reminders and a digital calendar and access to my email and games and Facebook all in the palm of my hand. So Jacques Ellul distinguishes between technology on the one hand and technie or technocracy on the other hand. Yeah, te- so te- technology is just um, the result. It is the practice of human beings who try to figure out ways of making their lives better with the use of stuff out there. That's kind of my rough and ready definition of what technology is. So um, if I can figure out a way to to, sh- to to allow my life to go on an extra year with a high quality, or I can figure out a way to bail hay that's easier than the miserable way I'm doing it, and I can bring together some pieces of bailing wire and a machine um, or some new information or a new way of thinking about a problem, that is essentially technology, and using it to solve a problem would be something that we might call something like technological appropriation, right? It's been going on with arrowheads and grinding stones and ships. It just, it's part of, this is part of what it means to be homo sapien, right? Homo sapien is meaning maker and also tool maker. So technology, or maybe it's better to say technologies, are the various things we do and create to make life easier for ourselves. That's not so bad, right? It's really hard to make a kind of moral argument against technology in general. I mean, most people in philosophy and religious studies that have tried to do this have failed miserably because it's kind of an amoral enterprise, right? It's just using what's there to make what, from your perspective or your culture's perspective, is going to make things better. And then there's technique or technocracy, which is where technology starts to take on a mind of its own or bring values that we didn't really decide on for ourselves. It imposes its own values on us. But what he wants to argue is that we haven't done our technology assessment very well and we've gotten out ahead of ourselves in terms of our smartness and our ability to do things. And now what we've got on our hands are technologies that perhaps are more than we can handle or can go in directions on their own. 
Elul claims that throughout much of human history, it doesn't seem like technologies are defining cultures and really shaping things in this dramatic way. And then around the time of the Industrial Revolution, a number of technologies come together in Western Europe to create a new way of doing things. Lots of people's lives change dramatically and quickly. I'll note here that I'm not sure he's got his history right. It seems fair at least to say that technology has its own logic and politics and dynamics that operate independently from human choices and values. Whether that has always been the case or whether it changed during the Industrial Revolution is a historical question that I think is worth investigating in its own right. That's something we won't try to decide today. Joel Zimbelman again. Um, and, you know, the classic example in the 20th century is the development of nuclear power, the bomb. You know, it's like suddenly we can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? That kind of language. And so I think Elul would say we're at the genie in the bottle, but it's not just nuclear power. It's technology in general. Technique is a process or a force that shapes human societies and activities around a set of goals and values that the humans didn't deliberately choose. The technology itself comes along with a set of values that, taken all together, starts to tell us who we should be, how we should spend our time and money, how we should run our governments and businesses, and also how we should think. Um, and the problem is, is that this, this technology almost begins to, with human help, begins to take on a power that is much, much greater than we have the ability to control it, right? Technique is a force all on its own. It's something that we encourage and adopt or resist, but it seems to have its own quote-unquote wants. It seems to act on its own with its own goals in mind, in a manner of speaking. Technique has a few identifiable characteristics. So, and he would say that there's... Um, there are some components of this and that we if we if, if if we're good philosophers and we're good thinkers what we can do is we can we can begin to parse these out and take them apart and we can look at what some of these characteristics are we can study the effects that technology has on society and the dynamics of the choices we make about what technologies to design manufacture and purchase when we do this we identify a few key features of technique the first one is what he would call over-rationalization. Over-rationalization. Everything with technology begins to become a kind of process of systematizing, separating out the good from the bad, the efficient from the inefficient. We begin to divide, put in place a division of labor on production lines, matching people's skills and abilities with a certain rote activity that they might engage in. We begin to create standards that we expect individuals to be able to meet, and if they can't do this much in an hour, we either downgrade them or whatever. We start evaluating people in their jobs on compliance levels with the norms. We eliminate spontaneity and creativity because it's a waste of time, because it undercuts efficiency. Every problem becomes an engineering problem. This is the technocrat's way of thinking about the world. I think of Elon Musk as a brilliant example of a technocrat. Yes, every, every if inefficiency becomes an opportunity to engineer the inefficiency out and to rationalize the process. I mean, Max Weber, a great sociologist, does a lot of analysis of this in the political realm, right? Uh, it begins in the production realm, but it can take place in the realm of ideas as well. And this rationalization and fixation on efficiency touches a lot of areas of human life that we might not have thought it would. We start to think about everything in terms of efficiency, and then the efficiency standard takes over. Efficiency becomes our core value without us really even choosing it. Uh, same thing with farming, same thing with the production of microchips. You, you can see a whole range of things. Anything where we can get rid of the, of the art of the way nature would go about thinking about it or doing it or producing, and if we can substitute rational processes for that, we can make things more efficient. 
And then the next step, of course, is simply automation. If we can take people out of the process, right, then we can overcome not only the costs of disability insurance and healthcare costs and pensions, which would be the obvious things, and stupid people that you don't want to have to deal with for 30 years, but all of the costs of parking and all of the other costs that come with training. feeding people and training them and giving them breaks and all this stuff. And suddenly what you can do is you can simply let them go home, give them a paycheck or give them a, 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 a some kind of a stipend and you'll solve your problems of product production even though you might create other problems down the road. But the point is, is that automation of technical choice becomes really powerful. I want to pause on this feature on over-rationalization for a second. One problem we face is arguably not an engineering problem at all, though it tends to be treated as one. The problem of how to teach at the college and university level at a time where the push is towards greater access, is a problem that is near and dear to my heart as a college and university instructor. How do we educate everyone in the population, or at least closer and closer to everyone in the population, while also facing budget constraints? One solution, a very tempting solution, is to make higher education more efficient, to simply treat this as an engineering problem. We have certain constraints, we have certain technologies, techniques, and human capital, and then we have certain goals. Solve for X. A solution that arises here is online education. Administrators tend to love the idea of online education, and for good reason. Less classroom space is used, scheduling becomes less of a nightmare, a lot of the lecturing work can be offloaded onto recorded lectures, which frees up instructors to do more grading and potentially deal with bigger class sizes, and so on. Online education allows us to solve the engineering problem I just mentioned, since it's in some ways more efficient. But we might worry that efficiency isn't the right metric for higher education. Maybe there are things to worry about in education beyond just efficiently putting content in front of students' faces. And this is coming from an online educator. I teach multiple classes online each semester. I love that my classes open up education to new students and new kinds of students. I'm pretty proud of the classes I put together. I think they're a good educational experience. I am, though, skeptical that online education is a good general model for all college students. The idea of online education is especially attractive right now, where virtually all education is being conducted online because of the pandemic. A lot of us who are skeptical about online education as a general model are a bit worried that the current pandemic will catalyze a shift towards more online education in the post-COVID-19 world. Something that's working super well right now in these strange circumstances may not be a good all-purpose solution in the future. Whereas technique would have us identify the most efficient means of content delivery and then do that and only that, we might think that an education is much more than getting information in front of the faces of undergraduates. We might think that some of those things are things that one can't easily or even efficiently reproduce online. But there are some surprising cases where the over-rationalizing effects of technique and the centrality of efficiency don't rule the day. Joel Zembelman of CSU Chico again. But, you know, I oftentimes, I do a lot of travel. And another uh, one that's been around for a long time, and it's a, a negative example. It's an example where we haven't capitulated. And I think it's kind of interesting, is the universality of using the metric system for measurement over the British engineering system, which is the pound and the ounce and the inch and the mile. Life would make a lot more sense to a lot of people and be a lot more efficient if we would all convert to the metric system, which is much more rational than the British, the British system. But in America, we've generally refused outside of engineering, science, medicine, and some other niche professions to adopt the metric system as a general system of everyday measurement. We've clung tightly to our pounds and yards and inches and barrels and cups and ounces. 
Um, but we don't do it in part because people don't want to pay the short-term costs, in part because they hold on to the idea that history and culture is something that they want to perpetuate in their own life, uh, in part because their national pride, right? Uh, a whole range of different reasons. There are really good reasons for maintaining inefficiencies when we get something else out of them when other values are satisfied as a result of sacrificing efficiency? I think that the other questions to ask would be, you know, if, if you do think that this resonates with you, uh, what's won and what's lost by embracing technology and allowing technique to, to manifest itself? What do you win and what do you lose as an individual, as a culture? National pride or the distinctness of a culture is, it seems to me, a perfectly reasonable value. We might think twice before we abandon something quirky and odd and maybe just plain silly, but unique about our culture. Efficiency and rationality don't have to rule every aspect of our lives. Technique, though it pushes us towards the most efficient model and the most efficient way of operating, has countervailing forces. Culture might very well be one of the more powerful forces working against technique. So I kind of think of that as an example where of all the, the ways in which things have kind of gone the way Alul says they have, that the, the global conversion, right, this universalization of the metric system um, hasn't happened. Although my feeling is, is that it is inevitable because what's happening now is that even people who work in the British, in the, in the old English system, are finding most of their life informed by the other, right? Not so much in on their carodometer, not so much in their cookbooks, but in just about everything else. It has in, insinuated itself into their life, and now they're beginning to find the differences are irritating, which is one of the signs that Yul talks about. You start getting you get, start getting ticked off at inefficiencies, uh, is a sign that this is really starting to take hold. So that's over-rationalization. We tend to allow technology, which tends to bring new levels of efficiency and rationality to areas of our lives where these values do not rule, we tend to allow technology to put efficiency and rationality front and center. We come to value efficiency and rationality without really thinking about whether this is a good thing. Here's Joel Zimbelman again with Elul's second feature of technique. And then another one is that um, uh, you get what, what, what Jacques Elul calls monism. That is, what, what happens is everything begins to drop to the mean. The second feature is called monism. What does it mean, though, to drop to the mean? In other words, there's a reason that all of the little cars on the road look the same these days, right? The Prius and the Fit and the focus, they all have the same nose, they all have the same headlights, they all have the same uh, windscreen and everything. And the reason is, is because that's the most efficient design for a small car. And we've tested this now, 800 different small cars. We've decided that this is the best one. I'm looking online at the 2020 model of the Prius, the Yaris, the Fit, and the Fusion. 2020 Toyota Prius. 2020 Toyota Yaris. 2020 Honda Fit, the last passenger car being produced by Ford. And that's it, except for the Mustang, of course, this 2020 Ford Fusion. They all look pretty similar. Aggressive lines and sharp detailing on the grille. The shape of the grille is a little different, but the body shape is almost identical. It's this forward sloping, sort of like a teardrop on its side. I think the windshields are all the exact same angle, probably the most efficient angle for aerodynamics. The Yaris and the Fusion are a tiny bit bigger and have bigger wheels, it seems, but these cars really do all look alike. There aren't these big dramatic differences you saw in the 80s and the 90s, where passenger vehicles all looked very different from one another. Elul says that is a natural move towards the mean and the unity of the mean in virtually every process that human beings engage in in life. And this process of technique takes as its clarion call the move to put everything on that mean. Diversity creates robust systems that are more effective and resilient. Diversity also keeps life interesting. 
But diversity is inefficient. The project of optimizing systems for efficiency, systems for making decisions, for producing knowledge, for manufacturing goods, for disseminating information, the project of optimizing all these systems for efficiency is one that does not value diversity, creativity, distinctness, or just plain weirdness. A long time ago, we discovered the best model for building bikes. And ever since then, that's what we've been doing. Making bicycles with this basic triangular design that puts the body more or less in a leaned over position with a wedge seat, pedals beneath and slightly forward from the sit bones, and so on. There are different handlebars, different seats, different lighting options, and different gearing and shock systems to support a wide variety of applications. But bicycles are basically either cruisers, road bikes, or mountain bikes, and then deviate only so much from this mean. Sure, there are a couple of non-standard models like recumbent bikes, but for the most part, bikes work more or less the same. There are, however, people who go out of their way to make deliberately weird bikes. They're sometimes called freak bikes. There's a whole workshop in Chico where I live dedicated to making freak bikes, the kind of thing you might associate with cities like Portland, bikes like newly fabricated penny farthings, bikes where two frames have been welded together so you're sort of like on a stilt bike, bikes with Baroque gearing systems that make little practical sense. These are bikes created to deliberately buck a trend towards the mean. I love them. I talked with a pal of mine from grade school who makes these bikes, Quinn Troster. My name is Quinn Troster, and I'm a farmer and land manager in Chico and try to make different kinds of bikes and fix bikes and break bikes in my free time. So what got you started on this hobby of breaking bikes down and rebuilding them in strange and non-standard ways? So I got started working on bikes in college. I worked at a, a bike cooperative in Santa Cruz at my community college. And so that got me introduced into mechanics. And I was kind of ridden bikes and I started kind of repairing bikes there and I was taking art classes at the time and really into metal art so I just kind of naturally evolved into having a huge assortment of bike frames and parts laying around that weren't being used and um, I had the tools to cut them up and kind of put them back together in different ways so that's where I started building bikes and then from there I've just kind of done drawings and Imagine what I'd like to happen and try to make it. So building bikes for me is a really good way to integrate my love for working on bikes and my interest in bikes and allowing me to do that in a way that isn't, you know, an artistic venture and gets me into a place where I can kind of enjoy both of those things in a way that makes something productive. So Quinn, could you describe a few of these freak bikes for us? So there is one bike that I built that had a, a bottom bracket, which is where the pedals are on the front forks. So somebody could sit on the handlebars and drive the front wheel while somebody sat in the back and drove the back wheel. So it's a two-wheel drive bike. I suppose you get a little more traction that way, but it's, it's not clear what the advantage would be since the weight distribution would be so awkward. But that's some of the point. It's not about efficient design or technical advantage. Uh, any others? Well, one of them is like the passenger bike. So somebody sits kind of right behind the seat of the other one. So you get gassed out every time you ride with somebody's, you know, after burrito or whatever. <laughs> Sounds pretty inefficient in design. Definitely not a design that's going to sell out at the stores. There's one that's a, like a big wheeler. It's two little wheels in the back and you drive the front wheel. And uh, I used to have a whole assortment of little children's bikes that we'd race around on and just kind of outfit those to somewhat manage larger people. And I have a friend in town who has like 15 of those, and he has a bike party, and that's kind of another thing. You know, it's very inefficient, but it's just really fun to, it's just kind of comedic to, to race each other around and try to kick each other off these little bikes. I'm looking at a picture Quinn sent me of a bike like this. It's pretty hilarious. So imagine a kid's tricycle. To ride it, you have to sit in the seat and put your knees over the handlebars so you could reach the pedals, which are welded above the front wheel. Then you'd grab the handlebars below your knees and steer that way. So clearly there's a lot of fun that goes into these bikes and comes out of them. Some of these are just for fun or, as Quinn put it, just because he's bored. Uh, there have been bikes that I've built. It's just like that, you know, that's a really stupid idea and it's definitely not going to work. But, you know, I'm 
bored and I want to do something. So, but others he makes for a different reason. So for me, just kind of being able to integrate those mechanics with kind of a sculpture and you know, it's I guess in a way it's a, like a performance. You know, I'm not like riding around with a bird suit on anything on my bikes, but it's just it's fun to share that and to be able to to use something that you know, hop on a piece of art and ride around and see see how far you can push it i guess it's an art form a performance and to some extent just trying to figure out what's possible and then i think for me it's, it's just a really fun activity to do and it's a puzzle to solve and it's active work with my hands and getting to integrate art and mechanics and so more than anything it's just a hobby that i have that, that i enjoy and makes me happy to be spending my time getting greasy and making noise one common type of freak bike is the tall bike. Imagine two bike frames stacked vertically and welded together with a chain connecting the pedals together. So then you can just sit on top and ride it almost like a bike on stilts. I think with those bikes especially, it kind of offers, depending on the frames you've got to use, it offers a really nice way to kind of integrate the lines and geometries of the different bikes into each other that kind of wrap into each other and kind of forms a, kind of a spliced seam that is visually appealing to me and uh, they're pretty fun to ride you know you sit probably seven or eight feet off the ground you're like your head is up there so you can see over all the cars that you're riding around which is fun and i was drawn to these bikes in part because they're a rebellion against efficiency against the mean or average against the hegemony it's an expression of artistry and craft but it's creative in the sense that it begins by asking why not it's an activity that's enough like traditional bike design that you might think people are in it to discover a more efficient or pleasant design, but they're not in it for that reason. They aren't technologists searching for a fix for the next problem. So I don't think that technology really drives me at all in this, and I'm just kind of doing it as a like more of an artistic project rather than trying to develop something that's you know going to change anything about the way bikes are built. Yeah, it's just uh, getting into a project and kind of figuring out how to make it work and seeing how it evolves from the drawing to the cuts and imagining imagining what can be done with an assortment of different parts and how they can link together. Thank you to Quinn Troster, freak bike artist extraordinaire. Back to a little on technique. Joel Zimbelman. And then, of course, the next is universalism. It's not good enough just to have a, a mean. It's that everywhere, everything must now embrace the mean, right? So it's not just that these little cars are great. It's that every little car on the planet needs to start looking like this. Universalism is the next feature. All compact cars begin to take the same shape and basic design. The cars that don't, in fact, are often ridiculed because of it. On another topic, it's great to have online education for those of my students who live in rural areas and for different reasons can't afford to move nearer to a college, or those with smaller children who can't afford to take the time off in the middle of the day to attend regularly scheduled college courses. Online education is ideal for these folks since they need the flexibility and asynchronicity of online lectures, exercises, and assignments. But just because it works great for these students doesn't mean it will be the best for all cases. This was the aspect of technique that I chewed on for the longest. It struck me how widespread it is to take something quite useful for one use or one application and then extend it to pretty much every conceivable application. Twitch, for instance, is a live streaming site almost exclusively used for video game streaming. Discord is a chat server until recently almost exclusively used by video gamers and I, th I think some hackers and the like. I've now seen both of these come up as potential ways to have synchronous class meetings. That's the weirdness of the COVID-19 world we live in. Teachers holding class and discussion sessions on Twitch. I somehow doubt though they'll be getting the revenue streams that Twitch stars are bringing in. Consider how useful texting is 
It's super convenient to have an asynchronous form of communication. I can send you a message and then you can answer me at your convenience in five minutes, 15 minutes, five hours, whenever you get to it. It's also great if you need to coordinate something specific. If I need someone's address, then texting is great since the message never goes away and I don't have to remember it. Texting is perhaps notoriously not great for lots of things, though. Not great for having long discussions about serious topics with loved ones. Not great for breaking up with a romantic partner. Not great for telling long stories. Not great for communicating sarcasm, compassion, or genuine concern. But we use SMS to do all these things all the time. It's maddening when you think about it. We had a perfectly good medium for many of these things. Phone calls. But text messaging is too convenient and too efficient. And so it just superseded phone calls altogether for many people particularly those of my generation, the millennials. I have some homework for you. Go watch the Key and Peel sketch I linked in the show notes. It's a hilarious depiction of exactly how drastically text message conversations can be read differently depending on one's mood and one's personality. And, and, and so not only do we become asynchronous communicators, but we also have a technology that has uh, inserted itself between us, Right. So think about the difference between talking to your daughter who's having a crisis through asynchronous communication, talking to your daughter through Skype, right? Talking to your daughter on the phone or talking to your daughter in the backyard where you're sitting next to each other while you're holding her hand while she talks to you, right? Elul would say it's not that any one of those forms of communication is necessarily in, in, intrinsically, ontically better or worse than another one, but there are different contexts in which it's appropriate or desirable or ideal for one form to be used over another, and there are some situations in which it's the wrong way to communicate. There are times when I need to pick the phone up or talk to a person rather than use, use texting. Snapchat is an app that's great for a few things. Sending really private messages you want deleted, sending silly videos and pictures that you're happy to see disappear into the digital ether. But people begin using it for loads of things, sending pictures and videos of their children, videos that will be automatically deleted later. Of course, now Snapchat has integrated ways to save these things. But it's really interesting to note that, as I understand it, these options to send replayable and permanent pics and videos came later in the evolution of Snapchat and came about because users were already using the app for these different applications that the platform simply wasn't built for. If we find something that's efficient, easy to use, or habitual, then we tend to want to extend it. To, then we tend to want to extend its use out to all possible applications. These are just a few examples of how Techni universalizes the application of efficient technologies to the point that they become universal. FaceTime was great for grandparents who were living far away from their grandchildren couples in long-distance situations, and those with hearing impairments. But it grew more and more to replace even traveling across town and all sorts of other forms of communication. Everyone is using it. Churches are making do right now during the pandemic with Facebook Live and with Zoom, but when the stay-at-home orders are lifted and life returns to something more normal, will people be willing to get up, get dressed, and go to church or will the convenience and efficiency of church in bed or on the couch in your jammies become just too tempting? I'll admit to really hating Twitter, but lots of people think it's great. And it's great for at least a few applications. County sheriffs, fire departments, and police departments being able to quickly send alerts out is great. Conference organizers being able to send quick blasts and updates is awesome. Being able to share a quick link is arguably a good use of the medium. Having a 20-tweet-long thread about the economic history of slavery in the United States, a horrible use of Twitter. No sources cited, really difficult to read, it's really awful, I hate it. There are other mediums for that. I don't understand this practice of long tweet threads at all. Maybe I'm already an old fogey. 
One of my pet peeves is tools that should have a power cable instead of a battery. I've had horrible experiences with the batteries in my gadgets, and so I generally would like to maximize the amount of corded equipment around me. Drills, shavers, vacuums, etc. Plug it in, I say. But as lithium-ion batteries have become dirt cheap over the past decade, virtually everything now uses such a battery. Many of them don't even offer a corded alternative. You must use the battery. This, it seems to me, is in large part because of the dynamics of techni. We take things that are appropriate for some particular uses, and we extend them out so that they're applied to every conceivable use. So in our survey of features of techni or technocracy, we've got on the table over-rationalization, monism, universalism, and then there's a final one that was perhaps the most frightening to Alul. And then the biggest fear he had was that there becomes a kind of autonomy, that the whole system becomes its own self-driving, self-rationalizing process, and that human beings lose whatever inputs they might have had into the process. And Dilbert in his comics every week seems to me to, to, to highlight this last issue of autonomy, which is that all the people working uh, in the office have lost the ability to have much input into anything. The whole system just seems to run rampant without their input. We're all basically in the same boat. We acknowledge that the big five tech companies are probably overall bad for our societies, but we're so dependent on them that we have a really hard time pulling ourselves away. Nowhere is this more the case than with Amazon. We all shop there more than we care to admit, but no one likes Jeff Bezos, and no one really wants him ruling the world. We don't like Amazon in principle, but in practice, it's just too darn convenient. But what Amazon does is it does exactly what these games on the internet do, is that it essentially creates ex nihilo, it seems like it, out of nothing, things that I want, right? So if I need a toenail clipper or I need a salad spinner, I need do nothing more than push two buttons and in two days it appears on my door. Having brought me both what I want, which is the objects, which have a half-life of about two years, but along with it, about four pounds of paper, which I can then, with a clean conscience, put into the recycling bin, and who knows what happens to it, right? And what this does is, of course, the objects are going to be produced by people, whether or not I buy them at the local drugstore or grocery store, or whether I buy them online. I order it, it appears at my door two days later. No harm, no foul, right? It's just magic. But what is happening, of course, is that one set of delivery agents is being replaced with another set of delivery agents, right? So the packaging and UPS people's involvement is going up, but the people at CVS Pharmacy and Bed Bath & Beyond local store are dropping, right? And so economists will say, well, you're just trading off one for the other. But Elul would say, no, it's not an even trade because what you're gaining in efficiency with UPS and Amazon is taking a huge toll in terms of the social fabric of the communities, not, 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 the, not the communities that make the objects, but the communities that are part of the intermediary structures that deliver the objects. And not always for at more cost, right? These objects don't cost me any less for the most part when I order on Amazon. It's just that I don't have to spend that much gas to get to the local store. Things get more efficient, but at the same time, our communities become more disparate. We no longer know the person selling us the computer, the appliance, or even the groceries. Those people end up having to work for a faceless corporation rather than having autonomy over their own lives. Our community becomes global while at the same time almost dissolving before our very eyes. This is bad, and we can all see that it's bad. So why don't we just stop? Why don't we just boycott the bad stuff? But Technia is not very sympathetic to people who want to buy out of the system. Uh, part of what this autonomy of technique does is it forces people back in, 
right? And you can understand why Elude doesn't like that because that's a that's what the Nazis did. The Nazis were into one size fits all, and he was a resistance fighter during World War II. So he he saw the Nazis up close, and he th- and he sees the world. He sees technique as being manifest among them, but also something that can show up elsewhere. Elul saw Techni as this sort of techno-fascist force. It's not run by human beings, though. It's the technologies themselves shaping our values before our eyes, acting on its own to make us into cyborgs. And the scary thing is that we're all watching it happen. We're all to some degree complicit in it, and we're not really able to unplug from the grid as much as we'd like. In fact, uh, if you do serious technology assessment, you do serious long horizon analysis, right? Not short term, but long term. And if you do, if you really, really do serious calculations about what this does to human beings, inevitably we find ourselves in a situation that is not a good one to be in for human beings. One case of people rejecting a technology because of the ways that that technology, that that technology would shape human lives, were a group of labor activists during the Industrial Revolution. Were a group of labor activists during the Industrial Revolution. They followed this mythic Robin Hood-like figure named Ned Ludd. They called themselves Luddites. The Luddites are a nice example from England where they decide the introduction of certain technologies is going to harm people more than help them. And so they say we should reject technology. There once was a group of artisans and craftsfolk in England. They spent years of their lives honing their crafts so that their labor was that of skilled textile manufacturers and weavers. They apprenticed, journeyed, and became masters of their craft. Then, in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, new machines, mechanized looms, and knitting frames came to England. Factories began hiring unskilled laborers to do the work of these artisans. They found inspiration in the story of one Ned Ludd, who was said to have destroyed a textile machine decades earlier. This man, I kid you not, was rumored to live in Sherwood Forest, The first recorded Luddite rebellion was in Nottingham. Yes, that Nottingham. Sheriff of fame. After much destruction and many incidences of violence and not a few deaths, the government cracked down, sending in the National Guard, so to speak, to quell the rebellion, to bust the Union. The technocrats won, and many Luddites were sent off to Australia. The ones who weren't were hanged. This story is fascinating to me. People who are against particular technologies because of the way it would shape labor and power relations a century later would have their name co-opted as a general epithet for anyone who resisted technological change, for any technophobe at all. In fact, being a Luddite is now generally seen as taking a sort of unprincipled stance against technological change, but the original Luddites were taking a principled stance. With new technologies often comes new power relations and new relations of dependency and domination. The Luddites saw this and rejected it. But the crown at the time was on the side of the technocrats, on the side of quote-unquote progress. When you enter this state of autonomous technique or technique, right, you've now lost the ability to rage at the machine. You've lost the ability to critique the machine, right? And so you're not asking yourself every week, is it really a good idea that we're doing things this way? That's lost. This book by Jacques Ellou, The Technological Society, is kind of a bummer in some ways. Yeah, you know, the thing is, when I read the book, it's kind of a downer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I wouldn't say... uh, it does kind of leave me depressed, right? Because I don't think that the picture he paints provides much of a optimistic outlook. Uh, but you know, he he. But I think he's writing it because I think he wants to believe that it could be different. I mean, I think as a 
as a philosopher, as a somewhat of an optimistic person in some ways, as a Christian, he would argue that you can't give in to determinism and fatalism and this kind of thing. This is the kind of things that you need to fight against. But it can be interesting to think about what it is we can do in a world full of technologies and driven by technocratic values. And that at the end of the book is kind of his critique, is that, you know, it may be too late. And if it isn't too late, we need to start making some changes and think about the way in which human beings fit in this. If we don't make these changes, the very meaning of what it is to be human will continue to shift. And it will shift in ways that we ought to be very uncomfortable with. In fact, some of this may be inevitable. Alul would say you can fight the battle and you might win in the short haul, but in the long haul, it's going to win. You know, you're going to become cyborg. Your phone goes from being on the shelf to being in your hand, to being in your pocket, to being on your wrist, to being in your ear, and the next thing it'll be, it'll be wired into your head, right? I was fairly convinced that Galula was right. I figured people would just continually progress towards cyborgdom. The phone would move from our shelves to our hands to our wrists to our glasses to our ears and eventually to being implanted directly into our bodies under our skin. I was, at least until the Google Glass fiasco of 2013. How did you know about the Google Glass? Google Glass. Google Glass. Google Glass. Google Glasses. Google Glass. I was living in Silicon Valley at the time, and so I was following the Google Glass phenomenon carefully. I was nervous about the possibility of people surreptitiously filming each other all the time, about the possibilities of my students being distracted by what's between their eyes and me who's trying to teach them. But much to my delight, the technology was rejected. Fred Armisen had this hilarious appearance on Saturday Night Live where he attempted to work at Google Glass and failed miserably, all while feigning enthusiasm for the product. You just, you just toggle through the menu like this, and you have to activate it kind of just a little... <laughs> kind of like this? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, almost there. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, just, that's pretty cool. It's great because no one knows you're doing it. Come on! Well, almost. Just, just, almost there. Go back a little more. It's that easy. And best of all, they look like totally normal glasses. Oh, I don't think that's true. People who wore beta models around the San Francisco Bay Area were ridiculed, ostracized, and called glass holes. People's values seem to take hold. A technology with the potential to bring us closer to cyborg status was soundly rejected by the general public, partially because Google Glass came to be associated with a particular kind of tech bro that no one wanted to be or to encourage others to be, but partially because we didn't like the technology and rejected it for principled reasons. If this sort of thing keeps happening, if humans keep reasserting their own values and agency when it comes to what technologies they choose to adopt, then there's hope. It may have been that Google Glass was just before its time, but I'm hopeful that humans will continue to assert their agency. This is simply the battle that faces those in a technocratic society. So the stakes are quite high. But I think Alou would say, you know, that's partly every culture has its battles. Like some cultures have to fight against woolly mammoths and others need to fight against, you know, Nazis and others need to fight against technique. And that's just what it is. This is one of the defining fights of human life since the Industrial Revolution, at least. How do we resist the relentless churn of progress? How do we do it without getting brushed off and dismissed as mere Luddites? Part of the, part of the thing about technique, as Alul explains it, is that it, it blinds you to what it's doing, right? You're so enmeshed in the matrix to use the metaphor from the movie, you're so enmeshed in it that you don't really know what, what reality would be like outside of it. And I think that's kind of what the great fear is that he's got. Whether I think the question would be whether or not the fear is justified or not. But it is very hard to escape this stuff. Part of the answer to this conundrum is philosophy. Philosophy is in part the practice of constantly re-examining our foundational assumptions and trying to get clear on why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do. Philosophy attempts to make the invisible and obvious visible and non-obvious. Those that never do this are particularly susceptible to technocracy. 
Of course everything's an engineering problem. Of course we need objective numerical metrics so we can measure success. Of course we should adopt this time-saving technology. Of course we should make everything more efficient. Of course. I want to close with a poem, a poem with a revolutionary spirit. It is written and performed by Chesco. My wife and I really love it. And the closer you are to 38 years old right now in 2020, which is Chesco's current age, the more this poem will speak to your experience of growing up. Enjoy. If it came with batteries, this poem would make me rich. Remember when being fake wasn't the norm? Back when pretending was a break from reality? I remember being in grammar school and simply calling someone on the phone was the coolest thing. I remember when call waiting was new and you could always get off the phone just by pretending you had another call. Then junior high came and having a pager made you cool. Then pager code replaced the real alphabet. But then everyone had two ways with actual letters and knowing that 4384 star 8043333 spelled out yeah boy became meaningless and yeah boy became meaningless too then cell phones came with actual texting and talking to people on the phone became cool again then the surreal life came out with flag of flame and yeah boy became cool again too and all was well in the world just in a surreal way but then AOL instant messenger came along changing everything no need for talking anymore then Friendster then MySpace came along because Friendster sucked then Facebook then Gmail then my Walkman stopped being cool and everyone had an iPod, so I bought an iPod. Then everyone had an iPod video, so I bought an iPod video. And now there's the iPhone. And I really, really, really want one. But I'm afraid to buy one because I heard that Apple's next device is even better than that. You'll be able to make a phone call without talking, text someone without pressing any buttons, take a picture without looking at anything, and play music loud enough to drown out any semblance of reality we have left. Artificial has become the new pink, and I need a break. I need something that doesn't hide behind the guys that it isn't attempting to be fake. So I propose we start a playground revolution, a revolution that doesn't actually do anything, but doesn't hide behind the pretense that it's even attempting to. I'll bring a VHS tape of old Full House episodes and you bring a My Little Pony coloring book. Meet me in the sandbox by the teeter-totter. I'll be breaking my big brother's metal transformers into pieces, wrapping them in old comic books and planting them as seeds to grow make-believe cartoon trees in the clay lining the sandbox. When I'm done, we'll have a relay race. We'll start at the slide, throw three pieces of the tambar through the tire swing, Skip to the merry-go-round, spinning it just fast enough that it becomes a spaceship to Mars, but slow enough that it doesn't go all the way to Jupiter because that's too far away to find Carmen San Diego. When we're done, meet me at McDonald's for an ice cream cone. Then we'll sing a chorus of the Toys R Us theme song, make a rough draft of our Christmas wish list, spend five minutes showing complete strangers our best ninja stances, have a serious conversation about possibly growing up one day and laugh at how stupid we were to ever consider doing such a thing. Then maybe... After we've done all that, we can set out on the Oregon Trail and spend the entire time paging our friends goodnight and figuring out a way to make my iPod play your old cassette tapes. Someday we'd like to get back to a world full of face-to-face communication. For now, though, we're stuck with distancing and sheltering recommendations that make such gathering very unwise. I'm quite grateful that we've got all of this incredible communication technology to help make this whole quarantine more bearable. Perhaps, though, we should proceed with caution when the time comes to reopen our society. Remember that we get to decide what technology to use and when. We have to make these choices deliberately, or we'll be driven by technique to accept a future as cyborgs bowing down to our robot overlords. I, for one, am not excited about that particular vision of the future. Thank you as always for listening to Reductio. This is it for season one. I've got interviews done and scripting begun for parts of season two already, but I would like to make it even better than this season. In general, my goal for the future is to have more time to devote to injecting personal stories which ground the philosophy in the lives of real people. I also want to incorporate more art, more music, short stories, and poetry into the show. Please do get in touch if you have any of these things to share, and we can talk about getting in on the show. 
In a matter of weeks, I will become a father. I expect there will be a bit of lag in how fast season two gets produced as a result. Stay informed on the progress of future episodes of Reductio. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reductio podcast. You can also shoot me an email at invertedspectrum at outlook.com and I'll get you signed up to our email list. Thank you to Joel Zimbelman for your expertise on Jacques Thanks to Quinn Troster for giving us a window into the weird world of freak bikes. And thank you all for joining us. If you'd like to support the show, some of the most important things you can do is to rate and review us on iTunes. There's a link in the show notes. Really makes a difference. Share the podcast on social media and mention it to friends and family. Makes an even bigger difference. And donate over at patreon.com. Literally any amount is appreciated. 50 cents a month would be great. You know, a bunch of people have heard of the philosophy of Baruch Spinoza, but very few know this strange passage in his letters where he writes to a friend, he writes, You know, Thomas Hobbes' work is garbage. I mean, I often ask myself while reading The Leviathan. Is, is he just, is he kind of just a whiny guy or not? In other words, is this just a, the, the usual screed that we hear from people who get old and who don't like the way the world's changing? And so suddenly it's not just a, I don't like it, it's that this is the end of humanity as we know it. Spinoza could be very rude. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin, and this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. Music